Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, last Sunday morning, we were in the book of James, and I want to continue in the book of James today. The book of James, of course, was written by the brother of the Lord Jesus, James, who was the leader, eventually, of the church uh, that was in Jerusalem. He was not one of the original apostles. In fact, it may surprise you to know that Jesus had a number of siblings, and they all had one thing in common, at least in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, is that they did not accept him as the Messiah. But uh, many of them, if not all of them, eventually uh, came to saving faith. Another one of Jesus' brothers, Jude, also wrote one of the epistles that we find in the New Testament. But our text today is in the fifth chapter of the book of James in just one verse, and it's the 11th verse. The title of today's message is Why We Can Trust God in a Pandemic. And I want to state the objective and goal of this sermon right at the outset. And that is this, my goal is that every member of First Baptist Church of Keller would have full confidence in God through this hour of trial that we're going through. And as a staff, we've been talking a lot about opportunities that we have during this pandemic. Uh, because this is a universal and a collective sort of trial that we're going through, everyone is experiencing at the same time that Christians have an opportunity and I think a duty to be different than the world. Because a lost and dying world, if ever they watch us, it's during times like these. They want to know if our faith is genuine and real, and if there's any real difference in the way that they order their steps and the way that we live our lives. We don't want to waste this opportunity. And so the scripture told us last week in James 1, 2, that when you're going through a trial, to count it all joy. And that is the way we want to think about uh, this entire situation, no matter how long it lasts. Now, some people, when they hear Christians counting trials as joy, think that we're just practicing what's called creative accounting. Creative accounting is uh, the idea that, that when there's a shortfall, that the accountants use loopholes and tricks to distract from the truth or dilute the severity of the problem. That's not what we're saying. We're not pretending that the problem is not severe or difficult when we say count it all joy. We're just practicing what I call the arithmetic of faith. That is Christians have a way of accounting circumstances in life that's fundamentally different from a lost and dying world. And so in James 1, 2, we were told to count our trials as joy. And here in James 5, 11, that same terminology is used. Listen to it now. He says, we count those blessed or happy who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Lord add his blessing to the hearing and reading of his word. If you remember last week, I said that word translated in our English Bibles as count means to consider. That is to think about something intensely, but to look beyond the present circumstance to what will result. And we said, if we want to put it in terms of accounting, that this present trial we're going to, we need to put into the category as an appreciating asset. 
It's something that given enough time is going to make God's people more useful and more valuable in his kingdom than we are right now. And so here in James five, he uses the same terminology, but it doesn't say count the trial. He says, count the people who go through the trial as something. And in this case, blessed are happy. Those who go through the trials will be eventually considered blessed. And he's not just saying that for no reason. Now, now think about this very practically. And the book of James is an incredibly practical book of the Bible. He tells us, here's how to live out your faith. Probably the most famous verse in James is faith without works is dead. He's saying it's fine to have clear orthodox doctrine. We must, but we also must live out that doctrine in our daily lives. And especially during times of trials. So think about for a moment, the people that you revere and respect most, whether it's a historical figure, a sports figure, someone at work, someone in your family, uh, those people I suspect that you most revere and you call blessed are not people who were born with a silver spoon in their mouth and they never endured any trouble. The people that are heroes, people that we look back in hindsight and say, that's the kind of person I want to be like, or people who overcame trials and difficulties and emerged from that to show true greatness. Now that's true also of characters in the Bible. There are many characters in the Bible that overcame incredible odds and endured great trials and sufferings to become incredibly useful for the Lord. In fact, there's an entire chapter in our New Testament devoted to those people and it's found in the book of Hebrews. And just like last week, let's turn back just two or three pages in your Bible and you will come to the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews. This 11th chapter of Hebrews is oftentimes referred to as the hall of fame of faith. And it, it's a, a list of some of the great men and women of the Old Testament who overcame incredible difficulty with their faith intact that the Lord calls blessed. Uh, it begins with the man Abel. Here's a man whose own brother murdered him, yet the Bible calls him blessed because the Lord accepted his sacrifice. It proceeds down to a man named Enoch, someone we know almost nothing about his life, except that he was so close and intimate in his relationship with God that he never died. The scripture says Enoch walked with God and was not. That is, God just took him to heaven one day. And then a few generations later, we, we come to this man, Noah, who of all of the men and women all over the known world, here was the only man that the Lord found to be faithful. He told Noah that he was going to destroy the world with a flood and for him to get ready, he and his sons and their families and to build this ark. And Noah, of course, was faithful in his generation to do that. And through his sons, the world was repopulated. And then it comes down to the patriarch Abraham and his wife, Sarah, who endured great hardships and travel and famine. And yet the Lord brought them to the land that he had promised him. And he made him promises that of his descendants, the nations of the world would multiply so numerous that the stars in heaven and the sands of the seashore would be like them. Um, that from him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And he overcame through the Lord's miraculous hand, 
uh, infertility. And in their old age, Abraham, Abraham and Sarah had a son. And then when that son was of age, God called upon Abraham to sacrifice him on the mountain. And Abraham was willing to do that. But God, of course, provided that ram in a thicket. And then came Isaac's descendant, Jacob, who had many sons. And uh, through those sons, all of the tribes of Israel are named. And then probably the best known of those sons was Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his own brothers, who ended up in a dungeon. But every time um, seems like the rug was pulled out from under him, he emerged better and more useful to the Lord. And when he got out of the dungeon, he ultimately became uh, second in command in all of Egypt and preserved his family there in Egypt, of course, until the time was for them to return to the Holy Land. And speaking of returning to the Holy Land, God set up a man, Moses, to be the one who led the Hebrew uh, captives out of Egypt into the Holy Land. And Moses' life was not a bed of roses either. He was a fugitive on the run much of his adult life. He lived out in the wilderness. And yet the Lord spoke to him through a burning bush, through many dangers, toils, and snares. Moses, like all of us, lived his life until the Lord was ready to use him in a mighty way. And beyond those eight, there are many unnamed heroes of this hall of fame of faith. In fact, describing them in verse 37, the writer of Hebrews says, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And so when we come to chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews says that collectively, all these men and women of faith who endured trials and tribulations with their faith intact, he, he refers to them as a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. And the image there is of a stadium packed with people. You remember those. We may go back to having those one day, but right now the stadiums are empty. But he's giving the picture of a stadium packed with people, but they're not just spectators. They are Old Testament saints who have run their race. They've gone through the training and the difficult journey of life, and they've made it to the finish line with their faith intact. And now they're cheering us on those who are now running our race. And he says, take their encouragement and lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance or patience, the race that is set before us. And then that verse that I quoted last week is next in chapter 12, verse two, because there's one who is greater than all of the Old Testament prophets, one who is greater than anyone, one who has suffered more deeply and more intensely, and that of course is the Lord Jesus. And he says, as you're running that race, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame and sat down at the right hand of God, looking to Jesus. Now there is, as we go back to our text, James 5.11, one Old Testament character whose name is most closely associated with suffering. And that is the man Job. And that leads me to my second point, and that is the affliction of the faithful. And I'm speaking specifically now of this man Job. Look at it, verse 11. He says, we count those blessed who endured. And then he gives us the prototypical answer of one who has endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job. 
We all have heard of the endurance of Job. In fact, your lost friends have heard of the endurance of Job most likely. In fact, there is a phrase in our vernacular in the English language called the patience of Job. Someone who goes through a lot of turmoil and goes through that uh, calmly is called a Job-like figure. So let's turn now, if, if we may, to the book of Job. Uh, Job is the book that immediately precedes the Psalms. So the Psalms is right in the middle of your Bible. If you can find the Psalms, just turn back towards the front, you'll come to the book of Job. And I want to read to you the first 12 chapters of the first, uh, first 12 verses rather, of the first chapter of Job, just to remind us of how he suffered. Scripture says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. So in that way, he was very similar to Noah and to Enoch and many of those in the hall of fame of faith. This was uh, not just any man, this was an upright and a God-fearing man. Verse two says he had seven sons and three daughters who were born to him. And his possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. And his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of his, on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around in it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. And so Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now that's an interesting story. And the book of Job goes on for 42 chapters. In fact, it's, it's such an account of a man's suffering that it boggles the imagination. So much so that uh, many liberal theologians read the book of Job and they say this can't possibly be historical narrative. This must be a metaphor, just a story or a parable. But here we find in James chapter five that uh, the brother of Jesus didn't view it that way. He spoke of Job as a historical character, someone who actually did suffer. And I won't read the 42 chapters of Job for time, but let me just remind you what happened in the very next chapter. Job lost all those livestock herds that are mentioned in chapter one. He lost all of his workers, his servants to the sword of people who came and took those animals. He buried 10 of his own children, all 10 of his children who died in what we suspect to be a tornado. He eventually lost his own health his body was racked with pain, covered in boils, the scripture said, from the top of his head to the bottom of his foot. To make matters worse, his best friends came and began to tell lies about him, accuse him of unconfessed sin. 
and his own wife eventually encouraged him to commit suicide. So how long did Job have to suffer? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. At least one week, because that's how long his, his friends questioning him went on. He had to wait for them. And, and then he speaks of the months of his suffering. So it might have been as long as a year that, that Job suffered incredibly intense trials. And friends, we don't know how long our trial is going to last. We hear different estimates from different people. Uh, we simply do not know. But for as long as it goes on, the Lord wants our faith to remain intact, but not just intact. He wants our faith and trust in him to grow. And so that's why Job is held up as a blessed man because of what we find in chapter two, verse three, for there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. That's God the Father speaking of Job. He still holds his faith tenaciously, even after all those things I listed had happened to him. Verse 10, that same chapter 2 says, In all this, that is in all these afflictions, Job did not sin with his lips. That's why we refer to the patience of Job. Job's faith remained intact. And friends, yours can too, if you will learn from his example and the examples of other saints who've gone before, none of whom lived an easy life, all of whom were called blessed because they endured in their faith through great tribulation. There's a third point I want to make. The real reason that we have a blessed hope is the anticipation of the future. And so back in James, he tells us that we are to consider the outcome of the Lord's dealing with us. That is the end of all this. Remember, that's what that word count or consider means. To look on the other side of and rejoice at the end result. Well, you know, in the book of Job, um, it's the classic feel good story that at the end of his life, the Lord restored to him all those things that he had lost plus. So if you, if you want to turn to the very last chapter of the book of Job, Job 42.10, you can skip over all of the suffering and just be reminded of, of what happened in the end. Uh, Job 42.10 says, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. That is, he had twice the net worth at the end of his life than he did in the beginning. Then all of his brothers and all of his sisters and all who had known him before came to him and they ate bread with him in his house and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of money and each a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed his latter days more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. And he had seven sons and three daughters. And then he goes on to list all of those. And beyond that, he gave him a long life. After this, verse 16 says, Job lived 140 years and he saw his sons and grandsons, four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. What a happy ending. Now we have to be very careful here as Christians there are two danger zones as we think about the hall of fame of faith and as we think about the faith of a man and the story of a man like Job. 
The first danger here is that we would fall into the error of the word of faith or the prosperity preachers. And that is what we call an over-realized eschatology. They teach that in this life, God has obligated himself to make us healthy and wealthy and live to be 120 years or more. He has not. Don't read a prescription for our lives into the life of Job. The reason the book of Job has stood the test of time is because it's so rare. Very rarely will a person go through that kind of turmoil and emerge more prosperous in this life than he began. But then there's a second danger for Christians is that as we're going through trials, that we speak wrongly of God's character. And that's really the danger I want to warn us about today because I I don't know many in our church uh, who are easy prey because you know the word of God. Many of you are very mature Christians that would fall for the lies and the ruse of the prosperity preachers. But we're not used to going through times like these. And I'm speaking of myself. Our country is used to prosperity. You know, when when couple gets married, we usually make vows something like in good times or bad, sickness or health, rich or poor. I've never met a 23-year-old couple in good health when, when they said that they didn't mean it. But when they say, I'm going to take care of this person when they're sick, they mean that if they have a cold, I'm going to make some chicken soup. But what it might mean is that you may have to take care of an incapacitated spouse for 20, 30, or 40 years without them even recognizing you're in the room. That happens. That's the kind of commitment we're made. So we're saying no matter what happens, we're going to continue to serve the Lord. One of my favorite Old Testament stories is of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember King Nebuchadnezzar passed a law, an ordinance, that uh, Every time the music played, everyone had to bow down and praise and worship him. And of course, these boys who grew up serving Jehovah God knew that they weren't about to do that. Nebuchadnezzar loved these men and respected them. But he said, look, boys, you're going to have to obey the law. And if you don't, we're going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And he was going to give them some time to come up with their answer to contemplate it, to discuss it. And one of them spoke up and said, oh, King, we don't have to think about this thing. Our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to worship you. And friends, our God is able to stop the coronavirus in its track today. And I hope you'll join me in praying that he would, but even if he doesn't, if he lets this go on indefinitely, he's still the same God, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can endure with our faith intact because others have done it before us. Job and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Joseph and Jacob and Enoch and Noah and on and on it goes. Our ancestors have done it. People who started this church 140 years ago went through two world wars, a great depression, a fire and a flood And we stand on those shoulders. And one day our children and grandchildren will look back to the coronavirus and thank the Lord that we didn't lose our faith. So be careful how we think of God, how we talk about God. As this thing goes on and becomes more difficult, we may be thinking that that God is, is not merciful and that he's not compassionate or even worse, that he's lost control of the situation. He has not. 
And so he says, anticipate the future. Back in James 5.11, he says, you've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. What we are going to be able to testify to on the other side of this is that the Lord is full of compassion and he is merciful. That is the ultimate outcome of all the Lord's dealing. And it may not be in this life, friends. Matt led us to read the 103rd Psalm this morning. And there's a, 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 a phrase in the 103rd Psalm that I choke upon sometimes. It says, he heals all of our diseases. And yet I have prayed at the bedside of many a person who didn't recover, who died. And sometimes at a young age. And, and I have prayed for my own family members that the Lord would heal them of, of certain afflictions. And so far it has not happened. And, and yet I, I read to the Lord, you heal all of our diseases. And I'm reminded what I tell you, that the kingdom of God has an already and a not yet element to it. There is a sense that in God's economy, all things have already happened. He's not confined to time and space, but from our perspective, disease and suffering is still with us and it's real. But in God's economy, his plan is to make all things right again that were made wrong because of sin's entrance into the world. And make no mistake, the coronavirus and cancer and suffering of all sorts can be traced directly back to the Garden of Eden. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, broke God's prohibition against eating that tree that was in the midst of the garden. To, to Genesis chapter three, when God cursed the land and he cursed man and his descendants. And we have suffering and pain in the world. It's not the way God designed it. He designed a perfect environment to have perfect fellowship with his highest creation man. And one day he's going to restore that. That is the blessed hope of the Bible, isn't it? And in Revelation chapter 21, we see what it's going to be like. John, the apostle that Jesus loved, was given the highest privilege, I suppose, anyone's ever been given. He was somehow supernaturally escorted into the future, to the very throne room of heaven. And he was able to see all of human history laid out before him and how it was all going to end. And he was told to write down what he saw for our benefit in Revelation 21 one through six says this, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among them and he will dwell among them. That's the Lord Jesus. And they shall be his people. That's us. And God himself will be among them. And hear this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And behold, he who sits on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Now that's in the future. That's at the consummation of human history. For, for the here and now, there is life to live and we don't need to pretend it's not difficult. We, we don't need to do some creative accounting and uh, pretend like people aren't suffering and dying in the world. They are. 
but we need to have a Christian worldview and perspective. We need to count it all joy when various trials come into our life because we look on the other side and know that God's working that to make us fitter instruments in his hands for his glory. And then we need to consider the lives of one another and, and of those who have lived their lives out before ours and count them happy and blessed who have endured and persevered with, our, with their faith intact. Now in these days like you, I've had a lot of time to do reading. And when I read, I like to read classics. And a classic is a classic because it has endured the test of time. And particularly I like to read old sermons and my favorite preacher from years ago is Charles Spurgeon. And though he's been dead nearly 150 years, his words are as relevant and pointed today as the first time he spoke them. Spurgeon led his church in London in the 1800s through a pandemic. And the conclusion that he drew from the Bible about how Christians are to think and behave in difficult days is, is threefold. Number one, he says, be patient, be patient. Ultimately, like Job, God will show himself to be full of mercy. The old English has it, he's pitiful towards us. That doesn't mean he's a pathetic figure. It means he's full of pity to his children, just as any father is pitiful towards his children when they're hurting and, and when they're sick. And so be patient. Don't rush out and make declarations of God that you'll regret later. Don't try to claim Old Testament promises or New Testament promises that are for the future in the here and now. Just know that God will keep you and preserve you and ultimately in this life or the next will show himself to be full of mercy. And then he says, be penitent. That's a word we don't use anymore. It's a, a word that means to confess and, and repent of your sins. In Luke chapter 13, which I preached from just a few months ago, the Lord Jesus was questioned about some tragedies that had happened in his day. Some people had died suddenly and violently. And the people want to know what are the lessons that we should take from this? And Jesus says, well, here's the first thing you need to take from that. You don't need to think that those people were worse sinners than you are. I've already heard some pastors make some foolish statements like God is judging certain people in our country for, for their sins. Jesus says, here is the ultimate lesson of any tragedy. He says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's not that some group within our country is causing the rest of us to suffer. He's calling every person, and I take it Christians, beginning in the household of faith. We need to examine our lives to see if there are things in our lives that are displeasing to him, and then to confess those sins. Every Thursday, so long as this pandemic has caused us to be out of corporate worship. We're calling upon you to set aside times of prayer and fasting. And each week we're giving you specific things to pray for. And so this week I call us to penitential prayer, to confess our sins before the Lord and, and to call upon him for mercy because we know ultimately he is a merciful God. In the end, he will show himself to be. And then the third lesson we can learn from this trial is, is to be pitiful. That is to reflect the nature of God and how we treat other people. 
just as he is full of pity towards us, we need to be full of pity and graciousness and mercy towards others. This morning, the unemployment figures came out and this past week saw the largest number of individuals filing for unemployment in one week period in the history of this country. When just two months ago, unemployment was the lowest point in the history of this country. We're not in charge. God is. So there is likely to be benevolence and financial needs in this community, a community known for its influence, uh, its affluence and financial independence. There are going to be people that can't put gas in their tank. There are going to be people that need groceries. There are going to be people that lack the necessities of life. And, and we want to be prepared for that. So you don't have to do that through the church. If you see people in need in, in your neighborhood and in your sphere of influence, help them in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then share the gospel with them. Because even if you fill their belly and don't tell them about the bread of life, you've missed a great and wonderful opportunity. And then if there are needs that are beyond you, you can certainly call the church. And we have resources available and we will distribute them as far as they will go. But our attitude and our disposition towards hurting people must be the attitude and disposition that God has towards us. And that is ultimately we are to be merciful and and pity those people. And we're reading this morning through the 103rd Psalm. And I want to uh, close today by, by reading verses 20 through 22. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all of you hosts, you who serve him doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. We can bless the Lord even in trials because we know ultimately he's going to use those trials for our good and his glory. And ultimately, in this life or the life to come, he's going to show himself gracious and full of mercy. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this word. Father, I thank you that uh, the word is not stale or irrelevant. It's fresh and new every time we read it. It's exactly what we need. Father, I pray that we'd lean upon you and lean upon your word now more than ever. Father, you're molding us and making us and sanctifying us through this trial as individual Christians and as a church family. I've never been more excited about the future because in the past, through people like Noah and Abraham and Moses, when you brought them through a trial, Lord, you, you, you made them fit to be used for your purposes. And Father, we look back on those lives and, and we call them blessed and happy. And Father, I, I want for myself and for our future generations to look back on this time in our church's history and, and bless us because we didn't lose our faith. We did not charge you foolishly. Father, our faith not only remained intact, but it grew exponentially. I pray that this time of trial would be a stepping stone through which you would take our church to even greater heights of service for you. And when that happens, Lord, we're gonna be very careful to give you all the praise, the glory and honor because it was your plan and not ours. I pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. 
Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.